Twitter. I'm Stephanie McNeil, he is Saeed Jones, and you are watching AM to DM to do 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 AM to DM do 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 AM to DM. Okay, so. Do you like my song? Uh, I plead the fifth. Uh, <laughs> Okay, here's wow. the thing. This song has been haunting me all week long. David was singing it earlier this week. I don't know if you guys could see it, but between the breaks uh, on Monday and Tuesday, David was, was singing it nonstop, and now you're singing it. What's going on? Okay, so what we have here is the convergence of two memes into one super meme. Okay, ooh, a super meme. Yes. So, this is what happened. So there's this video of this song called Johnny, I think it's called like Johnny Daddy or Johnny Johnny see, or something. Is that like. the one with the sugar and the yes. dad with the mustache? So, yeah, that. so okay. this baby is eating sugar and the dad is saying, no, Johnny, no, no, no. Okay. So this video slash song has been a meme for a long time. It's yeah. been a meme on Reddit, on Tumblr, and the original song is a song that many people have tweeted that they learned when they were children. I personally did not. Yeah, I just, honestly, I just assumed it was from like a random children's show. Our stage manager has heard it with her like three-year-old. Yeah, okay, so. Yeah, yeah, so I don't know where the original nursery rhyme slash song came from. Okay. If you guys know, let me know. Maybe it's a regional thing. Okay, so that's on one side. Okay, that's one meme. That's one meme. Okay. On the other side, we have the Baby Shark song, which is a song I learned growing up. It's like a camp song. Okay. And it goes, Baby Shark, do 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 Baby Shark. Then it goes to like, Mom, Dad, the Grandpa, all that stuff. And it's the song you <laughs> sing as a kid, and you're at camp, and all the little kids are doing it. Yeah. So. It's worth noting, uh, I grew up in inner city Dallas until the fifth grade when I moved to the suburbs. Uh, and that was the first year like I experienced like going to camp with all of the white kids at the schools in the suburbs. And I, I think I vaguely remember. Vaguely remember and I think I, I, the reaction I had this morning is probably the same reaction I had <laughs> in like 1996 or whatever. I mean, it's not like the coolest song. It's like, not. I'll, no, definitely not. I mean, not. It's, it's catchy though. It is catchy. <laughs> so, what we okay. have here is someone on YouTube, it's a children's channel, combined the characters and motif of the Johnny video. She said motif. With the Baby Shark song. And okay. so they created a song that goes, Johnny, Johnny, do, 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 do. I have no idea why they did this. I don't know either. And know. so now that is for some reason became a meme. And then a lot of people, because what usually happens on the internet is, there's something that's been a meme for a while, let's say on mm -hmm. Reddit on Tumblr, and mm -hmm. people you know who are very into the internet kind of know it and get it, and then it goes to Twitter and kind of the masses it start explodes. to understand it. metastasizes. It. Right, so that is what's happening right now. People are finding all these Johnny videos. Right. They're making weird memes about sugar. Um, but you are not alone. This has been stuck in everyone's head. Yeah. Here's a tweet from Owen Thomas. You ever just sit in peace having a good time, and then the fucking Johnny Johnny baby shark mashup pops up in your fucking head, and the next thing you know, your brain can't stop. Eating to do 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 eating to do 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 eating sugar. Wow. All right. Well, um, we also have a tweet here from uh, Rachel Hey Girlfield. Oh no, the sugar song is going to get stuck in my head now. Welcome. It really does. Right. I mean, I I remember as a kid it getting stuck in my head, and yeah. it's it's very odd when something from your childhood suddenly becomes a meme that's becoming dark on Twitter. But that's the world we live in. Okay. All right. Well, listen, friends. You know, I often refer to New York City as hell. Uh, I think that's fair. The subway, a lot going on. There are also brownouts in the city of New York this morning because of the heat. So we've got like backup power and everything. But that's not the only crazy thing going There's on. There's a lot of drama going we on. We got to talk about Snapchat now. Uh, here's a tweet from Micah Grimes at NBC News. Whatever mapping service that Snapchat, City Bike, Street Easy, perhaps others use, it seems is showing New York City as Jewtopolis, Jewtropolis this morning. True Tropolis? Yeah. I feel like they left a little. Not of only is that not clever, clever that's yeah. incredibly racist and yeah. not good. Not good. Uh, so Deputy Global News Director Ryan Broderick joins us now from London to help us figure out what's going on. Ryan, you are one Hi of the internet people who knows everything that I've just mentioned before. This is taking over our timeline. So do we know why Dutropolis is showing up on Snapchat? Uh, I think I have a pretty good idea of what happened here. So um, Snapchat uh, hasn't responded to our request for comment, but they have responded to users on Twitter saying that they use a third-party uh, data firm called Mapbox. Uh, Mapbox uh, works with like 
hundreds, thousands of apps. Um, and it's basically they're responsible for the, the map that you see in Zillow, City Bike, Snapchat. But turns out <laughs> they don't really make their own map data either. They're working with a, uh, essentially like imagine Wikipedia, but for map information. And that's called OpenStreetMap. And it, I did a little bit of digging around this morning, and it looks like a user in uh, earlier in August uh, switched New York City to Jewtropolis um, covertly while they were editing parts of London. Uh, and then it seems like uh, that data was fixed, but Mapbox pulled in the wrong cache. And so now we are seeing Jewtropolis all over uh, SnapMap. That's really interesting, uh, and and I feel like Snapchat keeps having these issues with third-party apps and and you know racist or just wildly offensive things kind of popping up. Has Snapchat, the company, said anything in response? Um, well, they can't do anything about it. Um, they would have to shut down SnapMap because they're technically not responsible for what I would guess is the one part of their app that people still use. Um, so, um, yeah, like. <laughs> they can't really do much about it. Um, the, 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 the lowest level of this, uh, OpenStreetMap, they fixed their maps of New York City. Um, and I think Mapbox is currently trying to push through a fix. We've reached out to comment for them too. Um, what I thought was the most interesting thing about this, though, is that um, it all seems to stem back to one user called uh, Medwedian President, uh, who has a very bizarre hobby of editing maps and replacing street names with Donald Trump Avenue and Adolf Hitler Boulevard. Um, so if you want a good sense of what kind of person is doing this sort of thing, well, uh, leave the rest up to you. So why are these big technology companies outsourcing to the point where they're relying on random users to name things on these huge apps that millions of people are using? That seems like a really, really, really bad idea. And it keeps blowing up in their faces. It keeps happening. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think the one aspect of it is that, like, right now, the hottest thing in, like, the app space are maps. I mean, you've, you've heard people call, like, maps the next search, like, the race to get a really good map app. But also, they're incredibly time-consuming. They're really resource-heavy. Um, unless you're Google and you literally have cars driving around mapping these things out, like, you're going to need communities to do it. Also, like maps are inherently very political. So it's actually kind of a cool thing that you can have a community of cartographers arguing these things out. And I think at their at the core, it's not a bad idea to sort of crowdsource a map. I mean, most people can sort of agree that like this street is here and this street's there. But um, you know, that also just is another thing that can be vandalized on the internet. And I think that as long as there are ways to vandalize stuff on the internet. Like people are just going to do it, um, and we just have now a very, very public example of all of the checks that would go into making sure that you know a city doesn't have its name turned to something incredibly anti-Semitic immediately. Um, just sort of failed in this instance, uh, but now we're like in this very bizarre situation where like Snapchat users can complain to Snapchat all they want, but Snapchat really has to rely on another company to fix their their product. Wow. I guess we'll see how long, yeah, I guess we'll see how long it takes to fix that. Hopefully quickly. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Y'all need to be changing the name of the city to fix the damn subways. Uh, but <laughs> to that point. Speaking of. <laughs> yeah. Here's a tweet from Washington Post reporter Dave Weigel. Uh, this is what we call a self own. Andrew Cuomo, can you stop interrupting Cynthia Nixon? Can you stop lying? Cuomo, as soon as you do, which... That kind of sounds like two kids arguing in the backseat of mom's car. Right. And it also sounds like the governor of the state of New York admitting that he's lying in the middle of the debate. Like, I know he, he, he thought he was, you know, he played himself, right? Yeah. Not a, kind anyway. of. Kind of. <sighs> Did you watch the debate last night? Uh, so I actually had every intention to. I was trying to be a good citizen of sure. New York City. And I read online that it was supposed to start at seven. So I had a few hours, you know, we get out kind of early from mm -hmm. the show. So I was on Twitter around five or six and mm -hmm. I noticed that people were live tweeting the yeah. debate. So then I assumed I had missed it. And it was at this point, it seemed to be almost done. And then I was kind of like, okay, I guess I just won't watch it. 
It turns out that reporters were live tweeting the debate, which was taped and then aired at seven, mm -hmm. which was pretty confusing. And once I kind of figured all of that out, it was already kind of late and I just didn't end up watching it. Yeah, I had the, I had the exact same experience. And I would like to think that we're pretty hip to the game. Um, so <laughs> so this is weird and we should like kind of figure out what was going on. Yeah, I yeah, it's, it's odd. Understand. Well, Twitter, we want to hear from yeah. you. If you followed last night's debate, tweet us your thoughts. Who do you think won? Let us know using the hashtag AM2DM. And we're going to get some answers right now. Uh, Ryan Brooks has been covering the gubernatorial primary race here in New York uh, for BuzzFeed News and he joins us now. Ryan, good morning. Morning. All right. So what was the temperature in the room, darling? And what were the expectations going into the debate? Uh, so the temperature is honestly, Andrew Cuomo likes his uh, debate spaces freezing. Um, there's a whole argument about that over the course of the week. Uh, so going into the debate, uh, people were expecting, honestly, Andrew Cuomo to mansplain things. He has a notoriety of doing that. Um, so earlier this year, he talked to a reporter. She asked a question, and she, he said that her question was a disservice to women. Um, so that was something that Cynthia Nixon's campaign um, was looking to, to play up. Uh, she's called him a bully throughout this campaign. Uh, she uh, has also had some trouble getting into the specifics of policy, so that people were looking to see if she was able to keep up with that. Uh, so yeah, it was an interesting debate, uh, a lot of crosstalk. So we'll get into that in a little bit. I want to highlight an exchange from the debate that you tweeted. Cuomo, are you a corporation? Nixon, I am a person. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you can what? let us know what, yeah, what was going on there, because that seems a little weird. Yeah. Um, so Cynthia Nixon's just released her taxes uh, recently, five years worth of taxes. Um, and so it turns out that she filed through the IRS as a corporation. Uh, Fickle Mermaid is her corporation. That's common uh, for actors to do. Uh, Cuomo called her corporate de corporate Democrat uh, throughout this debate, uh, which is an interesting thing uh, for him to do. Cynthia Nixon's running as sort of a progressive, and that's kind of been the pejorative that they've used against their uh, against their opponents. Um, so he called her a corporate Democrat, criticized her for filing her taxes through that corporation and they got into this really interesting exchange um, where he asked her if she was a corporation three times uh, to which she replied that I'm a human being, I'm a person. Uh, it was an interesting development, got an alert actually that Nixon's campaign fact-checked uh, Cynthia Nixon's actually a human being. So fun times all around. Good to That's really helpful. Know. Thank you. Yeah. Guys. Uh, glad they could clear that up for us. <laughs> Were there other, you know, kind of standout moments and, and, and or or uh, did they e either of them make effective movement on as you pointed out the challenges they were facing going into the debate? So, Nixon got into a little bit about him being a corporate democrat and talking about some of the corru corruption that's happened um, around his administration um, and with people that were uh, involved there. Some of the cases that have come up this year, uh, per Coco's case, uh, perhaps was one of his uh, people that he worked with closely. Um, so it's been interesting to sort of see that she didn't get to all of her key points that she's been talking about in the campaign, but she did get under, get under his skin a little bit, I believe. Um, she talked a lot about that, and she talked about the subways, which are obviously an interesting and key part of her campaign. Um, they got into this whole exchange over that, um, really wild there. He has been pushing further left at the beginning of that campaign. He admitted that he experimented with marijuana in college, um, which was an interesting thing to offer up in a debate like this. Uh, so that was interesting. Um, other than that, they pretty much argued with each other and it's really, said that this is the only debate that New Yorkers are gonna be able to see for this primary. It was a 60 minute debate. They argued over the Tappan Zee Bridge and the name of that and naming it for his father, the former governor of New York, Mario Cuomo. Um, so yeah, it was a little bit of crosstalk, a lot of argument, um, pretty much what they've been doing in the press throughout this whole primary season. All right. Well, we'll be following this one closely for sure. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed news reporter Tazneem Nashrula. What happens when women complain about men masturbating next to them on a flight? I reported on how airlines have responded to complaints about masturbation on flights. 
which is criminal behavior, FYI. Yeah, we would hope so. But yeah. Tasneem, uh, in her reporting, found that many airlines, uh, incredibly, do not take these complaints seriously as they should. Tasneem joins us now. Good morning. Hi. Hi. Hey, Tasneem. So what was the most surprising thing you found out about these complaints? I think what was surprising, well, not entirely shocking, was that how little, um, you know, overall sexual assaults on flights are reported to law enforcement. I mean, uh, last year, the FBI said they only got 63 cases of sexual assault that happened on flight that were reported to them. And what I found is that, like, it's really common sexual assault, harassment and masturbation on airlines is actually really common. Like most flight attendants over the course of their careers have been told that someone is masturbating on a plane or they've witnessed it themselves. So it's like pretty common. The problem is that um, the perpetrators tend to do this, you know, it's, it's more covert, it's more discreet than other more sort of explicit sexual crimes. So they tend to do it on night flights, you know, when the lights are low, when they cover themselves with a blanket and, a lot of women, I think, find it embarrassing to report something like that. They also um, second guess themselves, like maybe he's not doing it. Maybe he's just doing something else. And sometimes they don't want to create a scene. So I think what was surprising is how less sexual assault overall in flights is reported, even though it seems to be a pretty common thing. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it's a stunning phenomenon that victims of this kind of harassment are the ones who feel kind of um, ashamed to speak up because of our culture. You spoke at length with Michaela Dixon, uh, a victim of this kind of behavior. Can you tell us more about her story? Right. So uh, she told me that she was on a flight, on a five-hour flight from Orange County to Chicago earlier this month. And she was with a boyfriend who was sitting in the window seat and he was sleeping. And the man next to her um, like sort of four hours after the flight, uh, he began rubbing himself through the pocket of his very thin shorts and that he was making noises and breathing heavily. And at first, you know, she said that I was like, I, I don't believe that this is happening. I'm not sure about it. She was second guessing herself. But then he continued to do it. At one point, she said he put his hands inside his shorts. And so later she woke up her boyfriend. She was like, is he doing what I think he's doing? And he was like, oh yeah, definitely. So when the plane actually landed, that's when she complained to a flight attendant about the guy. Um, they immediately reseated her, you know, with, into another row with two women. And they told her that they had called law enforcement, which is what the protocol is for most airlines when possible criminal behavior is reported on the flight. So she was like, okay, they made her wait in the jetway. She didn't see what was happening because they told her to wait aside because they didn't want her to see the, you know, perpetrator. But later, what we found out was that United actually never called law enforcement. Their own security personnel sort of dealt with the guy and then let him go. Um, so Michaela herself later called Chicago police hours after the flight had landed and complained about this. And then now the FBI is investigating the case. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So... Obviously, this is a crime. Do any of these guys ever get prosecuted or get charges brought against them? So, yeah, it is a federal crime. It falls under the FBI's jurisdiction. Um, it, in, in some cases, there have been arrests. And in, in fact, in two of the cases that I wrote about, one man pleaded guilty to criminal charges while another man was convicted of criminal charges. Uh, a third guy was, uh, in fact, charged, but he was acquitted of all charges. It's usually... Um, indecent exposure and sometimes it's coupled with like inappropriate touching and sexual assault because sometimes men masturbate and then sexually assault a passenger so there have been cases in which people have been arrested and face charges and then you know and found guilty but i think it depends on how soon the airline contacts law enforcement so they can actually meet the perpetrator at the gate question him and then arrest him Wow. Uh, well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News editor Matt Honan about your reporting, Tasneem. Most flight attendants have either seen someone masturbating or have been told about it over the course of their career. What the fuck? Um, and you spoke about this, that unfortunately that this is accepted in some ways as an industry and norm. Uh, Tasneem, airline crew responses clearly varied. Uh, what can you tell us about how airlines are handling that? This is frustrating. Right. 
Um, so actually, most airlines have a protocol that they follow when someone reports criminal behavior. So the flight attendant is the one they usually report it to. The flight attendant tells the cabin manager. The cabin manager tells the uh, flight deck, that is the pilot. The pilot then sort of takes the call on whether to, you know, what to do, whether to invo involve law enforcement or not. And then uh, they contact the gate agent and then the gate agent contacts law enforcement. So what the problem is that it goes to like a lot of people and a lot of times it's like left to their subjective judgments or personal bias about the situation, like how seriously they take it. So we found a lot of different responses in airlines. In one case, you know, flight attendants did the thing. They reseated the woman who complained that a guy was masturbating next to her and they, they contacted law enforcement. But she said that they were like joking about it. Like she, they, they were standing near her and they were saying, oh, what perfume were you wearing? And oh, he had like a little too much wine. So in that case, they followed protocol, but they didn't sort of deal with the situation well. And in another case, um, uh, a high school girl was complained about a guy masturbating, but in that case, she said the flight attendants did not reseat her. They did nothing to stop the, you know, the guy from doing whatever he was doing, and they didn't call law enforcement. Wow. So in that case, she said they, you know, they failed on all three counts. And you know, there have been different cases where, in fact, there was this one case where a woman, uh, where two women were sitting next to a guy who was masturbating. One of them was sleeping. The other woman complained to uh, the flight attendant. They moved her. They contacted law enforcement, but they didn't like wake up the woman who was sleeping and let her sit next to the guy who was masturbating. And then when the flight was landing, um, they sort of like took her aside and told her, oh, by the way, you know, this guy has been doing this and then made her sit back in the same seat for the for the plane's landing. So it's sort of like a very subjective response on what airlines and how each each person responds to a situation like this. My goodness. Wow. wow. Well, thank you so much, Chasneem, for coming on and explaining your story to us and reporting on this very disgusting but very important topic. Yeah, we just tweeted it out because... Uh, Wow, stunning. Well, friends, uh, we have a great show for you today. Uh, Chris Coy from HBO's The Deuce is here. I know you're going to be sitting yeah, down with him exciting. in a little bit. And up next, it's time for Fire Tweet. You know you're doing good at your job when one of your bosses tweets you, thanks, Tom. Steph, are you okay? <laughs> Is this because you were singing? Because I was singing, oh, okay. yeah. Um, but I, Rachel, I appreciate your support. Rachel Hey Girlfield said she's high on the memes. She's having fun. Oh, man. That's a good way to describe my day, my day job. It's just high on of, the memes. You spend a lot of time covering the memes. and the. Yeah, yeah. It's part of my job. My other job is social news editor. So that's, that's what I do. That's what I do thing. all day. That's our thing. We can't Thanks for the support, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to these fire tweets. This first one comes from Come Get Song? Song? Yes. I think it's like Come Get Come get some, but like, come get psalm, like oh. the psalms of the Bible. Can you Bible. tell how long it's been since I read the Bible, y'all? <laughs> when you ask a white person, how's it going? And they say, it's going. That's how you know they're really going through it. It's how's going. it going, Steph? It's going. <laughs> Today, I'd probably say it's good, but yesterday okay. when I was like, Half, oh. half alive, I definitely yeah. was, it's going. You're definitely back today. You're singing, <laughs> you know, she's glowing. Now I'm just high alive. <laughs> Are we ready? Yeah. Sven Amish. I would love to hear the story behind that. Mm. Some asshole fish crawled out of the water 35 million years ago, and thanks to him, we have staff meeting. <laughs> That's a really sad way of looking at the miracle of life. Sven, how's it going? Yeah. <laughs> It's What's going. up, dude? It's going. <laughs> All right, this one comes from James. People who don't understand same-sex relationships make me laugh because fuck. I don't understand Korean, but I still know it's a fucking language. <laughs> All right, James. I like that. That could be a t-shirt. So, so good. So still good. real. Still real. <laughs> Jason Reynolds. Just held the door for, for an older lady, and when she crossed the threshold, she turned to me and said, I hope you have a wonderful sex life. <laughs> Such a kind thing to say. That is, yeah, oh yes. Let the, that is an anointing friend, a I blessing. Like enough old people don't take advantage of the fact that you can just say whatever the fuck you want. They could. 
And and, and it be and it takes on a whole level level of like an old lady would be like I curse you and be like ah. If I yeah, if I make it to yeah. a really old age, I'm just gonna like yeah. say whatever I want. Well, shout out to you, Jason, because uh, sounds like you're doing good out there. Okay, this comes from John. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts needs a separate line for people who have their shit together. Oh, yeah, that's kind of annoying when you're like all the way up at the front and then, then you wait to figure out what you that want. That happened to me this morning. The girl in front of me was just like, you know, we have to be here like seven on the dot, yeah. so I'm like trying to make it. Mm -hmm. And the girl in front of me was like having a soliloquy about her drink and I was like, ah. This ain't the theater, girl. <laughs> exactly, all right, you ready for the tweet of the day? Let's go. It's from Aparna Nancharla. Yeah. Fascinating when a techno beat is added to a sad song. Like, yo. Cheer up, Adele. <laughs> it is that really, that's really a lot. funny. That does happen a lot. Especially, There's a long tradition of that. I feel like a lot of disco songs are actually yeah. really sad. Yeah, it's summertime sadness is what I thought of. Ooh, a movie. Where she's like, it's like the, I got the summertime. It's just like going, going. It's like, what are we, happy or sad? Or both. Shout out to Summer Bummer. Okay, up next, we are going live from the district. The president won't stop tweeting. He just keeps tweeting. Won't stop. Won't stop. <laughs> Welcome back. We're going live from the district with White House correspondent Trini Party. Good morning, Trini. Good morning, guys. Hey there. Okay, so Trump has been especially prolific, and I would say scattershot this morning, uh, mm -hmm. even by his usual standards. Uh, let's start with this tweet about NBC News reporter Lester Holt. What's going on at CNN is happening to different degrees at other networks, with NBC News being the worst. The good news is that Andy Lack E is about to be fired for incompetence and much worse. When Lester Holt got caught fudging my tape on Russia, they were hurt badly. You know, Trump is really bold to be using the phrase my tape. Okay, in this era, be careful, sir. But anyway, to be clear, Tarini, about this Lester Holt interview, it took place a year ago and its entirety is available online for everyone to see. So it's, uh, a little weird to me that this is that he's trying to like lie about something that's easily disprovable. So why is Trump targeting uh, NBC and Lester Holt this morning? So we've seen the president talk about the collusion side of uh, Robert Mueller's investigation in the past. He usually screams about it on Twitter. But this morning, he is tweeting uh, and using his fake news argument about a different part of Mueller's investigation, which is obstruction of justice. And that Lester Holt interview that he mentions, which, as you said, was over a year ago at this point, um, in this interview, he says something that, you know, potentially uh, admits to ob obstruction of justice. He said he uh, fired uh, James Comey because of, quote, the Russia thing. Uh, and this is at the time when the administration had been saying that they fired James Comey because of his mishandling of the Clinton investigation. So, you know, now a year later, he realizes he might have said something that could be a problem in this investigation. And so he's trying to use that fake news argument. But also taking it a step further. He's not just saying, you know, fake news. He's saying that Lester Holt uh, doctored part of this interview, which everyone saw over a year ago. Um, and not, and he's doing that without any evidence. So I thought, you know, the whole, um, obviously, uh, tweet was problematic in different ways. But the fact that he's now taking this fake news argument a whole step further uh, was also pretty stunning. Yeah, he's not just saying that, oh, they edited out my response or something like that, which, I mean, playing devil's advocate, it'd be easy to shut up up an interview, right? But the effort it would take to somehow make it seem like he was saying something he didn't actually say, right. I mean, that, that can't happen, right? I mean, what is NBC saying about this? So uh, they, I don't think they've said anything quite yet, but we've, he also uh, brought up CNN in his tweets. CNN has responded and said they're standing by uh, their reporting. So we'll see uh, as these attacks on media companies continues, we'll see them trying to come up with ways to respond quickly to the president. I know CNN just put out a few tweets. Um, I'm sure Lester Holt and NBC uh, will do that as well if they haven't already. So you've definitely explained this where I get it a little bit more now, but I'm still confused as to why this is happening this morning. What did something trigger it or is he just going back through his Rolodex of people who have wronged him yeah, and tweeting them like out a, like one by one? Right. Was it like a Fox and Friends segment? Yeah. <laughs> 
So it's hard to know what exactly goes on in his mind and why he decides to bring up certain things. But I think that it's probably connected to Don McGahn and the announcement yesterday that he would be leaving soon. Uh, you know, there was reporting in the past on how Don McGahn had kept him from doing certain things that could be problematic in terms of the obstruction of justice uh, investigation. For example, firing uh, the special counsel or the attorney general, things like that. Um, so I think that he's probably connected Don McGahn to obstruction of justice to that interview because that has come up as one of the examples in which the president seemingly admitted to obstruction of justice. So maybe that is the line of thinking here. Wow. Thanks, Tarini. <laughs> I always think about um, like uh, drowning victims and the idea that like if you if you're not a well-trained swimmer, uh -huh. rescuing a drowning victim is actually very dangerous because they'll kind of pull you on and pull you under as well. And okay. it just seems like uh, when President Trump feels he's under siege and is freaking out because a lot of reporting on, on these investigations come out, he just starts just reaching out there trying to pull people underwater with him. That's a really good metaphor. Yeah, creepy. Anyway, here's a tweet from Charlie Warzel because. It's not just CNN and NBC Trump has been going on about. Uh, he said this, no, Charlie Warzel said this, if you're going to level big angry presidential complaints at Google, at least don't flagrantly lie about something that's evil, easily provable with archive.org and screenshot. Yeah, that's right, because Trump is also accusing Google of coming after him this morning. It's, been a, it's been a lot of tweets. It's a lot. We're, just, <laughs> we're just, just paddling out here. Anyway, joining us now from Montana is senior technology reporter Charlie Warzel. Charlie, good morning. Charlie's face is just... <laughs> <laughs> Everything is so stupid and exhausting. <laughs> I have to say, Charlie, your nuclear bunker is looking very nice. Yes, yes. That's right. You're all welcome there. A bunker truly. glow up. Well, Charlie, what the hell truly is going going on with Trump and Google? Uh, great question. Um, on, on Wednesday, President Trump posted a video on Twitter accusing Google of uh, promoting former President Obama's State of the Union address um, on its you know main search page, so the most trafficked page arguably on the internet, um, and, and claimed that in 2017 and 2018, when Donald Trump was giving the big speech before the two houses of Congress, uh, Google didn't promote it at all. And he used the hashtag stop the bias. And this is sort of a um, part of a multi-day campaign now this week uh, of President Trump's uh, accusing Google of uh, being biased against conservatives and censoring them. This is sort of the next leg in his, uh, uh, in the sort of conservative social media censorship campaign. Wow. Um, and, and, and frankly, it's just not true. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of kind of mind boggling how easy it was to prove that that video wasn't true. Um, a, a quick call to Google and Google said, uh, that, you know, they, they did indeed promote it on their page and a screenshot from archive.org, uh, also, also shows that, um, in 2018, when it was a state of the union in 2017, it was just an address to Congress. The first one, first presidential one is usually just an address to Congress. Um, in 2018, they did promote it. So, so it's just factually inaccurate. And, uh, and we're all just sitting here shaking our heads. Mm. So it's factually inaccurate, but does that really matter? I mean, are his supporters going to believe this no matter what? <laughs> It absolutely does not matter. Uh, his supporters, you know, this was pinned at the top of his page starting from yesterday afternoon until uh, I, I might still be pinned to his page now, meaning that thousands upon thousands of people are seeing it. They're watching it. They don't have the same uh, knowledge of, of, you know, Google's internal practices. And, uh, and so, yeah, this talking point is working, uh, very well. Um, many people in the pro Trump media from gateway pundit to RT to Infowars, they all ran with this, uh, exactly, um, the way that, that, that Trump's account said, uh, and didn't question at all, didn't ask Google. So this narrative has spread, you know, well beyond the president's Twitter account. And, and people do believe that, um, that there is a, a, conservative censorship plan afoot, which, uh, as we can tell right now, especially in this regard, is, is not correct. Wow. Okay, so it's easy to verify that this is false, um, but as you said, it's spreading very well. I wanted to ask you, as a senior technology reporter, and you're always looking at misinformation and how it travels and why, were you surprised to see this escalation from, like, news organizations to Google? And if you weren't surprised, what would you say comes next? 
I mean, I think that the that the sort of um, conservative and 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 pro Trump backlash against big tech, against Google, Twitter, Facebook, we've seen it kind of you know bubbling about. Um, it's definitely been a talking point on the fringe sides of like the pro Trump media, uh, but obviously this gives some like, massive fuel to the fire. Um, Steve Bannon uh, uh, spoke with CNN last night and and mentioned that this is really uh, he believes that Donald Trump is sort of using this as the beginnings of a of a of a to start like a groundswell movement against big tech. That there is there is a feeling that you know the uh, the biggest platforms for fr- free expression um, are controlled by um, the you know liberal elites and and that that plays really well um, and it's sort of you know, it sort of reaches its tentacles into uh, into actual complaints, which is that you know these social networks are actually you know sometimes playing fast and loose with our privacy, and when there is sort of a reckoning going on that way, so they're sort of co-opting that movement that actually does have a lot of merit, and trying to you know bring in this, as we can tell right now, false narrative that, that there is you know some some blanket censorship campaign going on. So I think, I think it's going to continue to get more and more intense. And, uh, and I really, I really do think that, uh, that we're just going to be dealing with this for a very long time. All right. Dictionary.com. They're coming for you. Uh, Charlie, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Our DC bureau chief, Kate Nacera tweeted, The White House instructed 14 federal agencies and the Drug Enforcement Administration this month to submit, quote, data demonstrating the most significant negative trends about marijuana and the, quote, threats it poses to the country. Joining us now to talk about his story is BuzzFeed News reporter Dominic Holden. Good morning, Dominic. Good morning. Good to be with you. All right. So what is this secret marijuana policy coordination committee? What's going on? Right. So the White House has brought together this secret committee of federal agencies from across the government. And what they are tasked with doing is combating the positive attitudes that many people in the country have toward marijuana, identifying problems with these state initiatives, specifically around legalization, and portraying marijuana as a national threat to security and to public health. Um, This is according to interviews with people at agencies, as well as documents that we've obtained here at BuzzFeed News. And it appears that these agencies and components of the White House are prepared to give a briefing or have given a briefing to the president about this. One of the ironies in all of this is that they're complaining about what they call a one-sided narrative about marijuana. But in reaching out to these agencies, they are only asking for data that represent negative trends, no matter what sort of positive data exists and what the overall picture looks like. Okay, so my main question in reading your story is why? Why is marijuana the thing that the administration is focusing on to the point where they're putting so much effort into trying to prove that marijuana is, I guess, going to ruin America? (laughs) Amidst a major opioid crisis. Yeah, yes. On the one hand, the Trump administration is no different here than past administrations, Democratic or Republican. The Office of National Drug Control Policy, also known as the Drug Czar's Office, is by charter designed to counter positive marijuana messages. Trump himself has been sort of mushy on this. The White House has said we'll see more enforcement in states with legalization laws on the books. Trump has said he wants to protect those states. But I think that we have to look at something more fundamental. Trump has been overtly racist in his campaign and the way he runs his administration. And the fact is, marijuana enforcement disproportionately affects people of color. So it would really fit in with the overall theme of racism of the administration to promote policies that hurt people of color. Okay. Well, one more question about this, the secrecy. I mean, uh, Jeff Sessions has, has never hidden his stance on, on marijuana legalization and nor has, you know, other members of the Trump administration. So why are they trying to do this, um, you know, under wraps? We did reach out to the White House, and ultimately what they said is that they couldn't discuss their deliberative process. You know, on the one hand, this could be Trump seeking this out. On the other hand, there could be people on staff who are sort of covertly trying to organize the federal government to persuade him to take the next step. It's not really clear why they're operating in secret, but we got the document, so it's not a secret anymore. Okay. Thank you so much, Dominic. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. 
Up next, I sit down with one of the stars of HBO's The Deuce and Hulu's Castle Rock, Chris Coy. Stay tuned. This is a sit down and I'm here with Chris Coy, an actor in HBO's The Deuce and Hulu's Castle Rock. Chris, thank you so much for taking time to come yeah, on. Of course, thank you. Yeah. So we're going on season two of The Deuce. Mm -hmm. It picks up five years after the end of the first season. So how have things changed on the show? Can you give us any little hints? Yeah, um, I mean for everyone on the show or just like the sort of time and space of the show, like disco is booming and like uh, live and let live has, uh, is a huge part of the city life and uh, parties and excess and um, the drugs are good. Uh, the people are like, you know, really, really kind of thriving as far as liberation is concerned. Uh, and certainly within like the gay community where my character exists. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's party time, kind of. It's like it's like the the boom before it all kind of comes crashing down. 1978, New York City is like maybe one of the most exciting times in American history. Yeah, it's so interesting to look back at that time in New York City history because it's so different than how the city is today. Of course, yeah. And is it almost like the catalyst for why it is this way? Like it, it got too. Exactly. Loud. It got it got to be a little too big. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, what's it like on set seeing New York transform into its kind of, I guess, wild heyday? Surreal. So, like, uh, typical day, like, you wake up, it's 2018, you go to work, you go to your trailer, you get in there, you put on, like, all this period-appropriate clothing, which is all too legit. Like, you put something on and like wardrobe walks by and you're like, I like the shirt. And they're like, yeah, and it was stitched in 75, so don't mess it up. And you're like, whoa. And so like you put all that stuff on and by the time you come out of your trailer, they've filled the streets with like 200 plus extras also in period appropriate clothing, 100 plus period appropriate vehicles lining the streets, dumped trash everywhere and they've put up 15 whole marquees like that are all appropriate for the time as well. And like, dude, there's no... I can't imagine a real difference, certainly not a physical difference in like traveling through time. Like, well, a lot of the buildings are still the same, right? That's what I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just sort of like the exterior and changing like the neons and stuff like that. I love that they have to dump trash on the street <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> to make real. it more and legit. Like, <laughs> and they're taking that seriously too. Like you'll see like five or six of them looking like at the piles of trash, like no, no that trash. one needs more, that needs more. <laughs> like. So what's like your favorite thing to wear from the 70s? Or is there Ooh. something that you think, oh my gosh, this looks so silly, I don't wanna wear this? No, Paul, I'm really lucky with Paul. He's got great uh, taste and uh, sense of style. Um, obviously, thanks to the wardrobe department who just like crushed it for me. Thank you guys. Um, probably his boots. Paul's got these gray, like, they're like low cut kind of cowboy boots, platform on the back. Like I essentially had to learn how to walk in heels. I have a newfound uh, empathy and sympathy for, for you ladies. And like, uh, and now I understand like it makes my ass look really nice. Like when I walk with heels on. That definitely is a plus. That's what happens, yeah. Those boots sound pretty, pretty good. Yeah, pretty yeah, good. they're good, yeah. yeah. Um, and then also like this season too, like all the jeans got get tighter and, um, Made me a little more comfortable with my own body, I think. You know, you kind of got to, like, just face Hey, the you're working it. You're, you're <laughs> yeah, rocking exactly. it. It looks awesome. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks. So, obviously, the 70s weren't that long ago. You know, we don't think of them as being too long ago. But in season one, your character, Paul, was frequently harassed just for living as an out gay man, which obviously is a huge difference right. to today. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, obviously there's still issues, but, you know, it was a lot worse back then. So what is it like for you to portray a gay man in a time where it was so difficult to be one? Yeah, um, one of my favorite parts about it, that's like, that's like the, one of the um, most like sort of palpable challenges of playing that role is like trying to get inside that mindset. And certainly in season one, we're coming on the heels of like the Stonewall riots, which in a lot of ways kick in the door for the gay revolution in New York City. Um, but, you go into that knowing that like you're going to let your impulse drive you in those moments like for example in the scene uh, in season 1 where i get arrested for doing nothing other than like being at a gay movie house um, he doesn't know that that's coming or that that's going to happen and so you just walk out of that theater and then Ralph Macchio 
sorry, the karate kid, like grabs you and arm bars you and like roughs you up and tosses you in this thing and like no matter um, who you are or where you are or where that time and place is, like your reaction is the same. It doesn't feel good to be bullied. Um, and so you just sort of like have to face that and the emotion in that moment and, and yeah. I think that if you do too much prep or thought about that coming, then like you're kind of missing the point because when that stuff comes, it's often abrupt and unexpected. And that's why it cuts sort of so deep. Have you learned something about that time period and gay history in New York from this role? Yeah, of course. Um, more in season two, like I wasn't aware of just how um, libertine that community was. Uh, I didn't know that the gay community in New York City in 1978 was not just in American history, maybe the most liberated time, place, and people ever. Like what you want, when you want, with who you want. And as far as they were, as far as they knew, no consequences. Um, and just like what an incredible, or what an incredibly free existence that was. Um, and I certainly, I mean, I was born in 86. I, I didn't know that about that time. Um, and it's been really fun to get to play this guy who doesn't know what's coming and only knows that like he's living in this moment. And on top of that, Paul's so good at at being present and positive um, and just like living fully free in that space. I think that's something that's really interesting about watching shows like this. You know, I was born in the late 80s as well. And yeah. there's things, obviously, we try to be as schooled as possible. But, the thing but they don't we, teach you that in school. They they're, don't. Yeah, Maybe they do. Maybe they will someday. They're not talking about the Christopher Street peers and like all of the yeah. things that were going on in there. So. Yeah. So the deuce, obviously, uh, it has some very explicit scenes. It's a very, you know, there's like the very sexual show. And since the season one premiered, we've had the Me Too movement. A lot of women are speaking out about treatment on sets. Mm -hmm. So how does the deuce balance in your experience, you know, telling the stories of these people who, you know, have been marginalized, you know, sometimes that involves really graphic scenes yeah. and making sure that the performers and crew are safe and comfortable. Better than any other show or movie I've ever been on, certainly. Um, David Simon, in an interview early on, uh, said, I, I, might, I may be paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of, I'm going to make a show on HBO about the origins of the pornography industry, and people are going to want it to be really gratuitous, and I'm just not going to give it to them. And I think that, um, in kind with a lot of his other shows, um, He's more fastened and fascinated by the truth, and that's what he wants to do. He's ruthless when it comes to that endeavor, um, and he doesn't care about making it pretty or sexy, just real. Um, and the story that we're telling is a dirty one, um, but I would say I would I would say that like the sex scenes are more gritty and raw than they are glorified or gratuitous. Um, and then on top of that, they also, we have a, um, which I've never experienced this before, but we have an intimacy liaison on the show who days or even weeks before any sort of nudity, whether it be brief or full, uh, gets on the phone with you or will arrange to meet you in person and discuss piece by, beat by beat exactly what's happening, what you're comfortable with, what you absolutely are not comfortable with, um, and to like clear up any confusion that you may have or any questions that you might have. And then on set, she is there and almost between you and everyone else at all times. She's the first one to check on you um, before and then after the scene. She comes in and says, are you okay? And was that okay? And is there anything that you need me to say to anyone? Um, is that something that you've seen before on set? Never. You said no, yeah. Never. Is that a new trend in the industry, do you think? I don't know. I hope so. I hope that it becomes that. I mean, it was certainly like, um, it's like a cushion. It's just a little more comfortable. I've done other shows where I had to be naked or where, you know, you had to do sex scenes. And um, not that they didn't handle it as professionally as, as they knew how. But there certainly wasn't this buffer there that um, almost acted like a shield. Mm -hmm. um, I thought the, I think the Deuce does it better than than any anyone I've ever met. Well, I can't let you go before we talk a little bit about Castle Rock. 
Yeah, sure. That was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, so you posted on Instagram that things aren't always what they seem on this show. Yeah. So does that mean your character will return? Can't say. <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, I have no idea. Um, you know, it's J.J. Abrams and Stephen King and two kind of like prolific guys and they play things kind of close to the chest as, as do like uh, Sam and Dusty, the two creators of the show. Brilliant, brilliant writers and uh, obviously they've got just genius source content to pull from. But uh, no, I'm in the dark, just like you guys, which is why I, to be honest, I posted that because I was like, hey guys, hey guys, this doesn't mean I have to be dead. That kind of sounds fun though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think watching the show, one of the fun things is not really knowing what's going to happen. It sounds right. even more fun to be on the show and not even yeah, know what's exactly. going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And it's true that like sort of the, the uh, natural laws of life or even narrative don't necessarily apply in that in that story. But yeah, like I mean, anything, Stephen King, J.J. Abrams. Anything can happen. Anything, literally yeah, anything exactly. can happen. Yeah, that's right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me and oh, talking no, all about these pleasure. important issues. Yeah. Uh, the Do Season 2 premieres September 9th on HBO. More AMTDM is up next. Serena Williams is, of course, the greatest athlete alive. And she does it all while serving look after look, darling. You know it. Refinery29 writer Channing Hargrove joins me now to talk about Serena's evolution as a sports fashion icon. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Okay. Because we're going to pay homage. Yes, we Okay? <laughs> Here's a tweet I wanted to talk about. This comes from Not Again Ben in the UK. You tweeted, Serena Williams is not only wearing tutu, uh, a, a tutu after being told her outfits are, quote, disrespectful. She's wearing them in different colors. Yeah, she had a white one, a night and day. Okay, so she is, she's been giving us a look for years. I mean, yes. she's always been pretty iconic in uh, the outfit she wears while competing. Um, how did the tutus kind of enter the story? The tutus enter the story. One, they were designed by a black man. I think that's really cool. Virgil mm -hmm. Abloh at mm -hmm. Off-White partnered mm -hmm. with Nike to do okay. her, her U.S. Open looks. And I think it's fun that Serena's like, you don't want my tutu? You don't want my, I'm sorry, cat suit? Yeah. Fine, like, she, I'll move on and right. do something better. You want me to look like a woman, I will be a woman for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in some ways I like it because it's, it's almost even more outlandish, right? Exactly. It's very yeah. over the top. It's incredibly mm -hmm. feminine and she's still incredibly fluid in winning mm -hmm. her matches. Yeah, so. incredible. It's yeah. almost like a parody of the femininity that they were like, you want it? Here it is. Right, have it. <laughs> have all of Here's it. Here's a tutu. <laughs> well, let's talk about the cat suit okay. because that's kind of recently what this all started. Uh, why was the cat suit, I mean, it's iconic. Why, why was it so radical though? I think it was radical, one, because it was practical. She needed mm -hmm. it because she's suffering from blood, blood clots after having her baby, but also just because I think it's she's always shown who she is on and off the court, but mm -hmm. like I think the problem here is that old white men are continuously policing black women's bodies. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, yeah. She's obviously a curvy person. Mm -hmm. She's very athletic in her form, but some old white man decided he didn't like it, and so now she can't wear it. Yeah, and I mean, because there, there's nothing, I mean, looking at this, there, there's nothing, if anything, she's her body is more covered. Like, the, the, there's no That's logic. The she's not it. risque at all. all. Her body's practically all covered. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Well, um, how is the French uh, Tennis Federation barring her cat suit and labeling it, quote, inappropriate, part of actually, as you said, like a longer history of these old white men, often in charge of these organizations, policing black women's bodies in sports? I Well, I think in general they police black women's bodies. It's mm -hmm. just like we are shaped a little differently, mm -hmm. so it's like we're often over-sexualized, which mm. comes down into how we are dressed and how people perceive the way we're dressed. I'm sure she put that on and didn't think that she was being sexual because she wasn't. It serves mm -hmm. a purpose. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want to suffer from blood clots as she's performing and competing. And some old man, I guess we don't know his thoughts when he looked at her, but he took it to a place it didn't need to be. Incredible. Um, this isn't the first time we've seen this happen um, in you know, track and field, other sports as well. Can you kind of talk about some other examples of other black women athletes dealing with similar dynamics? Sure. Um, in 19, I think it was 88, Debbie Thomas, performed, she's a figure skater, and okay. she performed wearing a leotard. Mm -hmm. And after she performed, they actually banned suits without skirts attached to them. And they only recently lifted that rule in okay. 2013, in 2003, I'm sorry. The, yes. That's it? Yeah. That's the... So this is her on the right here. Uh -huh. And they decided that that was just too risque. And obviously, like, tennis, 
figure skating is very elitist. There's uh -huh. a certain type of femininity mm -hmm. that is placed mm -hmm. above others. And similarly with Flojo here on yeah. the left, she like gave you hair, uh -huh. nails. I she was like, it. I'm gonna run in this lace bodysuit and you're uh -huh. gonna take it. Yeah. It is interesting, I think, particularly when we think of figure skating mm -hmm. and, and tennis sports that are, uh, you know, seem to be framed in this idea of wealth, yes. right? And and white femininity seems yes. to be a big part of the conversation. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, so it's like they want you to be soft mm -hmm. and subtle and a little fragile. And I guess, you know, if that's not how you feel. Like, this is a look. I mean, it this is. is a it this is. is a look. I mean, Flojo, I would wear that now, Come honestly. On. <laughs> Come on, I'm impressed she has her hair done. Right? You're running in the heat and everything. I mean, the funny thing is she used to be um, a hair and makeup artist, so oh. she just like, this is who she is. She like Stunt. brings herself to her sport fully, and uh -huh. I think that should be appreciated. And in all three instances, like these are some of the best athletes in each of Isn't that fields. funny? It's incredible, it's incredible. Well, Serena, of course, has never been one to shy away from mm -hmm. her blackness, from her selfness mm -hmm. yes. on the court. Can you yes. talk about some other highlights? Yes, Serena, when we met her, she was 16, mm. she had her beads in her hair, as you know, a yeah. young girl often does yeah. when you're like trying to weather the different elements and the humidity and whatever with Absolutely. your hair. So like the, the beads were an issue for an, all, a really long time. Mm. But I also personally love that she plays in gold hoops and like diamond mm -hmm. bracelets and earrings. Like to me, she's just like a black girl from Compton and that's really cool. Absolutely, particularly when, you know, when we think of successful iconic athletes like her, mm -hmm. I always think of young kids yes. seeing someone who's like, oh, okay, my auntie has those earrings. Right. Maybe I can get out there one Agreed. day. That sort yeah. of visibility, I think, mm -hmm. is changing the game. Yeah, absolutely. We have a tweet here from Landless Landlord. You <laughs> tweeted this adorable photo. Oh, my Aww, gosh. My so daughter's cute. role model. So this is exactly what we're talking oh about. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I my love heart. it. My heart feelings. That's so We've cute. We've got them. So just, I mean, for anyone, let's just say, who just doesn't get it, in good faith, is clueless. Can okay. you just sum it up succinctly? Why is it so important that we allow uh, thriving athletes like Serena Williams to thrive as black women on the court for young women like that. You don't want to police a woman like Serena Williams because it makes her feel like even she's the greatest athlete. If you were policing her in this state, what is someone who feels less than going to be? You're going to dim your light. So we have to let her shine in all of her greatness so that we all can do the same. Absolutely. Channing, thank you so much. Thank you much. for having me. And again, you can always read Channing's wonderful work on Refinery29. Please do. Up next, yeah, please do, darling. <laughs> Up next, uh, Stephanie's going to be talking about 90s fashion, which, you know, feels like we're all kind of in it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Here's a tweet from friend of the show, Jenny Han, author of the book, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Early on, I made the producers and director mood boards of Lara Jean's style. I wanted them to understand that even though To All the Boys I've Loved Before is a contemporary realistic story and not Harry Potter or Hunger Games, her style is crucial to understanding the character. I'm joined now by Vox Culture writer Constance Grady, who talked with the co movie's costume designer about how she made those mood boards a reality. Constance, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So when I watched the film last weekend, I mean, her style was one of the things that really mm -hmm. jumped out to me. I mean, one of the first scenes, she's talking about how she got her boots on Etsy. Yes. So it was definitely a huge part of her character. And she told the costumer told you she was inspired by 90s rom-coms. So what movies and celebrities did she specifically say were Lara Jean's style muses? Uh, the big one uh, that was uh, highlighted both by Rafaela Rabinowicz, who's the brilliant costume designer, and by Jenny Han is Alicia Silverstone in Clueless, who had those beautiful, you know, yellow, bright yellow three-piece suits and her knee socks. Like, you can't not think of that when you think of the 90s and the teen movie revival that was going on then. Uh, she also talked about Winona Ryder and Claire Danes, who were sort of spending the 90s running around in these, like, very minimalist slip dresses and, like, just pure black, sort of almost goth on the red carpet. Um, and finally, Sex in the City was a big influence. Sex in the City is late 90s into the 2000s, but there was such a mix on that show of high fashion and then just very individual character-driven fashion, you know, where every character had their own specific look. And that's something that I think you really see into all the boys and is part of what brings you into the movie so nicely. After you talked to her, did you go back and notice some of the looks that you hadn't noticed when you first watched it? I mean... I'm not going to say how many times I've watched All the Boys because it's 
it's a lot. Um, <laughs> no shame here. No, but I think by the time I talked to her, I'd kind of like pretty much memorized most of the outfits and was like, okay, I have a general sense of how this is working. Um, she did highlight there's a flashback scene where you see Laura Jean at her ninth grade homecoming looking like super, super young in like glasses and a braid crown and this like big poofy sequiny skirt that had passed me by a little bit the first time I talked about both the, the first couple of times I saw the movie uh, and Raffaella highlighted it as one of her favorites because she'd sort of built the skirt and created this look of a tiny little high school freshman trying to enter into an adult world of high school dances that I thought was just so specific and gorgeous. What was your favorite look? I love uh, Lara Jean's last outfit, which is probably the most cluelessy of her outfits. She's wearing like this bright pink toggle coat and a little plaid skirt and a sweater. And it's sort of the share from Clueless vibe. Mm -hmm. Ah, so good. Um, but there's a little slight bit of an edge to it. She has everything kind of slouchy. It's not that clean line that share from Clueless had. What I love about this is in a lot of those 90s teen movies, you could be either like a cat from 10 Things I Hate About You or a Bianca from 10 Things I Hate About You. You know, either the girly girl or the kind of edgy alt girl. And Lara Jean kind of gets to be both, which is so fun. I love that reference. Uh, so where can we get that coat? Do you know? Can you I, tell me? Okay, I demanded to know the answer to this because I love that coat so much. Uh, it is from this UK-based brand called Gloverall. However, when I went onto their website, they did not have it in pink anywhere. So I don't know if that was a limited edition or not, but you can get it in like red or navy blue. <sighs> Sigh, well maybe they, I mean, they could cash in on this for sure. <laughs> absolutely, they should be. So one other interesting part um, of this movie was the costume designer also focused on the character's jewelry, which is a little mm -hmm. bit something you have to, you can only notice if you, you know, are really paying close attention. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I love this. So uh, Lara Jean is always not in most of the scenes wearing a heart-shaped locket, uh, which I believe is a reference to the books in which uh, Peter Kavinsky gives her a heart-shaped locket in the second one. It's very cute. Um, and Margot, her older sister, in most of her scenes is wearing a key-shaped necklace because she is the key to Lara Jean's heart, which is adorable, sister feelings. Uh, but when Margot goes off to college, she's wearing a necklace with an Aries symbol because she's a free spirit. And then when she comes back, she's wearing a compass because now she's coming home. Wow, that's so beautiful. It's so lovely. It's those little details, I think, that makes this mm. movie one that everyone's very in love with right now. It's just so sincere. Yes, for sure. Well, Constance, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I want to go out and buy a scrunchie. <laughs> Up next, we are reading your tweets. Okay, to all the boys I've ever loved, I'm obsessed. How many times have you seen it? I've only seen it once, but I've been super busy since it came out, That's so. Fair. I've yeah. watched it twice. I've resisted watching it a third time for fear that I'll like become addicted. Like I just, it's so comforting. It's so dreamy. The clothes, the just the. I just a beautiful setting, and I think it's, it's Portland, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't I think, think it's ever, Portland. I don't I think, think they ever mention it, but uh -huh. I was just in Portland, and I think it's Portland. Same. Isaac and I were in Portland just last week for the uh, uh, road trip, and I was mm -hmm. like, ah, oh, memory. I don't. I'm gonna have to talk to my therapist today. Like, why is this movie just so <laughs> good for it's me just, right now? It's just a good movie. It's just I a think that's simple I as that. It. Shout out to them. Well, uh, you had a lot of responses to Tasneem's incredible reporting about this, the airline industry's inability or refusal uh, to deal with sexual misconduct on planes for customers. Sarah Bella V, you said, I think they should out the airlines who are not responding properly if they haven't already. If anything, I'd know who not to fly with and they'd get hit in the wallet. I agree. I would, I mean, the problem is, I think, based on what effort so far of her story is that it's just a mess kind of across the board. Yeah, Sarah Bella. Unfortunately, there really wasn't one airline that mm -hmm. was really bad at this and say another airline who really, you know, I, we don't have data across every single airline, mm -hmm. but it seems like a more of a culturally, a cultural problem in the industry rather right. than one specific airline. Absolutely, sure. and it seemed like it was reflected also like in the culture of, of flight crews, right? Mm -hmm. Like some crews were very proactive, others were just like making jokes. Uh, and I think, I think it also is just kind of the culture of 
uh, generations. Mm -hmm. You know, I think mm -hmm. maybe people in our generation would probably take this a lot more seriously. I don't want to generalize, but mm -hmm. there is, you know, this attitude that you do see sometimes in older generations where it's like, oh, you know, boys will be boys. Like, you know, Oof. they say like they're joking mm -hmm. with the passengers, like, oh, what were you wearing? You know, yeah. that seems to me like maybe it's just a cultural yeah. thing. And that colliding with the experience. I'm just struck by the experience of one of those sources. A five-hour flight. You are enclosed in a space. Five hours. You, you know these flights are often overbooked. It's not like you can just easily, you know, remove yourself from the situation. So you're so dependent on the airlines to help you. Well, and also, if they switch your seat, then someone else has to sit next to this guy. It's right? a mess. It's a mess. Well, Rachel Hey Girl Field says, it's no longer tolerated on the subways. The culture needs to change on a plane. We think it's safer there, but clearly it's not. It's not. It's not. Well, so, I mean, just shout out to uh, Tasha Nova for her reporting. Like, we've got to keep reading it because it's it's crazy out here. Um, Pix Maven, uh, you had a suggestion for President Trump. Uh, why doesn't he just use Bing or Dogpile? Does Dog? Pile still exists. What is Dogpile? Dogpile was one of the search. Remember, it used to be like Alta Vista, Yahoo, Dogpile. Ask Jeeves. I don't know if Dogpile is still with us, which is maybe the point. Maybe she's like, maybe stop, you know, searching yourself. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've been on like tablets and stuff where they try to force you to use Bing. Yeah. Sorry, no. Yeah. It's, I, just it's no, good. no. no good Google all the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you to our guests, Chris Coy, Ryan Project, Ryan Brooks. Tasneem Nasrula, Trini Party, Charlie Warzel, Dominic Holden, Channing Hargrove, and Constance Grady. Wow, that is a ton of great people. That's a ton of great people, a ton of great names. Uh, listen, we made it through the show without a brownout. Tomorrow's Friday. As far. Yeah, uh, tomorrow is great. Friday. Amen. Let's celebrate that. We'll see you tomorrow, guys. Bye.